Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Connection and communication are kind of the themes of this particular episode. Uh, we have on a guest veteran who you may have seen before in our recent uh, Vietnam music episode, Don Nemchek. And we also invite Jim Roberts, who's also a Vietnam War era army veteran, onto the program. We're going to be talking about uh, letters letters home from the front, uh, letters from families to the front. Um, Don served in the Navy, so he was on ship. Well, Jim was in the bush uh, in Vietnam. How did they receive mail? What was the mail like? We talk about Dear John and Dear Jane letters, the origination of that Dear John sort of terminology. So something that I'd never really thought about or gotten into uh, about what what was what were in these letters and and what were people writing to each other and and were they sanitizing these letters to to not let their family members worry about the things that they were getting into? Um, we talk really heavily about that. We also go back in time a bit and talk about V-mail from World War II. So I think that'll be an interesting sort of bit of historical information in there for you. Uh, so enjoy this conversation. Uh, we also have um, some videos that we're going to play, some historical videos. So if you're listening to this on audio, you jump over to the YouTube side, you'll be able to see some of these videos, but you will hear the audio of these old-fashioned, and we'll set them up, these old-fashioned videos. Uh, excited to have you on board here for the Scuttlebutt. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast, and please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org with your own letter about, hey, this is what I think about the scuttlebutt, or hey, these are some uh, military topics that I haven't heard about, but I'd love to hear more information about. I'm happy to dive into those and release an episode based on uh, your suggestions. Thank you so much, and uh, enjoy the program. Uh, Don, Jim, uh, so excited for you guys to be a part of the podcast today. Uh, in, uh, people will know from the intro that we're talking about letters, uh, letters home from the front, and letters to our servicemen and women um, from home. Um, I think this is a really interesting subject, Don, that you brought to me uh, that I don't know much about, but it's something that's very personal for everyone involved. Um, but I'm so happy that you are both here to talk about this and sort of give us a history of this as well, because uh, you know letters to and from the front have been around for as long as there's been a front. Um, and we'll get a bit into that, but first let's have everybody introduce yourselves. Don, I'd love for you to go first. Thanks for joining the Scuttlebutt. Well, you're welcome, Sean. It's my pleasure to be here, of course. My name is Don Nemchik. I'm a U.S. Navy veteran of the Vietnam era. I served from 1970, 1974, uh, various communication stations within Southeast Asia as a radio man communicator. Um, my final tour of duty was on board the USS Constellation, which is a attack aircraft carrier that uh, flew the last combat air ops up in uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, known as Yankee Station. And uh, we were very proud of uh, uh, the USS Constellation service in the Navy. Uh, she uh, served all from 65 all the way through to 73 in the Vietnam era. And uh, actually one of her uh, pilots, Edward Alvarez, was the first pilot shot down and the longest POW uh, who flew off the USS Constellation. And he's still with us today. He's still alive. So uh, there's a lot of interesting stories. And I'll hand it off to Jim, who we're really happy to have uh, on board with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Sean. I'm delighted to be invited. Um, see, I, I'm, a, I'm a veteran, U.S. Army. I was an infantry lieutenant. Uh, I got my, my bars the hard way. I went through OCS. Um, I enlisted in 69 and uh, got to Vietnam in April of 71, which was during Vietnamization. I was on a five-man team called MAT-111 Mobile Advisory Team. I didn't work with a regular unit or um, 
an American unit. We lived in the village and worked with the Vietnamese in the jungles. I operated with one sergeant, uh, Sergeant Turner. He was a sergeant first class on his third tour. Uh, he was retiring at the end of his tour when he derosed. And so he and I worked together exclusively with, with, with the Vietnamese. And, uh, and when, I, when I left Vietnam, I left the service. So that would have been in December of 1971. Excellent. Thank you both. So yeah, we're here to talk about letters. Um, and maybe we get a, just a bit of history here first, but uh, as a civilian, I've heard the term Dear John or, or Dear Jane, um, but I didn't quite understand what that term meant and where it came from. Okay, if I could add, uh, Sean, how it originated, the, the name John, the male name John was the most popular first name from, according to census, from about 1848 to about 1920. So in World War II, uh, there was a lot of mail going back and forth and guys were deployed for uh, the duration, if you will. And whenever mail came through, if your girlfriend, your spouse or someone was writing to you and it was something uh, pleasant or uh, romantic, it would be, oh, my dearest John or dearest Johnny, you know, my darling. However, if you got a dear John, that had an ominous tone to it. And guy says, oh man, I know this isn't gonna be good. So the term dear John was just kind of a moniker for that letter that you were going to get uh, that uh, oftentimes was not welcome, of course. But interestingly enough, the Vietnam era was reported to have the most dear Johns written to them. And I had a theory about that. I was talking to my spouse about it this morning. My wife says, you know, probably because society had changed and women were now more free. There was uh, women's lib, there was uh, women were out more. So they had the opportunity now to say, I'm not gonna wait for this guy for 13 months and things happen. So uh, mm -hmm. I think that term dear John just became the uh, the term for something, you know, this isn't gonna be good. Now, of course we have dear James, but uh, I think that's how it originated with the fact that John was the most popular first name for a very long period of time. So mainly it was a letter uh, of a, like a girlfriend breaking up with you. That's correct. Well, you know, okay. what's interesting is I trained troops in, in the army. We used to call cadence when we marched to keep everyone in step. And some of the cadences, most of them you really can't uh, use nowadays in, in, in a public setting like this, but uh, we have what we call Jody calls. And this was kind of preparing the GI for this. The two of the Jody calls that I remember were Jody, Jody, don't look back. Uh, no, trainee, trainee, don't look back. Jody's got your Cadillac. Jody, Jody, don't be blue. Trainee, trainee, don't be blue. Jody's got your girlfriend too. <laughs> <laughs> Jody is the was the uh, uh, the made up name of the guy who's uh, taking your spot when you were gone. So he was uh, going to take care of everything for you. Yeah, take everything. care of everything. There are some Jody calls that we can't repeat today, of course. Right. But, um, <laughs> and back in our day, of course, it, things were somewhat different. Uh, there was more luster to it, I think, and. Uh, you know, that's kind of just the way military was. Whether it was right or wrong, I'm not here to say, but there is more to it than that. And many of us remember those. Uh, uh, Jody's got your gal and gone. Did either of you get a Dear John letter? I got a semi-Dear John letter, if you will. And here's what it was. Interesting. Semi-Dear John. That's interesting. Semi-Dear John. I wasn't totally romantically involved with the uh, girl that I was seeing uh, early on. Yeah, we were, we were uh, close friends. It was... Uh, my prom date uh, we were seeing each other that summer of love if you will and she tended to be a well she was an artist and she tended to be i'll just use the term hippie style and um, you know, 
cute kid, long hair, very cool and all this. And she didn't want me to go into the service, number one. Well, I was already committed. And then number two, uh, knowing that I was going to go to Southeast Asia, she, when I was home on leave, she wanted me to go to Canada and all this other stuff that other guys, were, some other guys were doing. And I, I wasn't going to have that. So uh, a short period of time later when she wrote me, she was going on her merry way. And uh, I wasn't crestfallen or, or so blue that I was distraught. But uh, it was a kind of a semi-dear John. It was almost expected because uh, I was uh, I was going to be gone for a long time. And, and she was a young woman uh, going to college or our paths uh, actually still cross, but uh, uh, she was just of another uh, ilk. And you have to remember those times, the society was changing so rapidly, Jim. I think you can attest to that in late 60s, early 70s. Things were just changing so fast the way we uh, we were as a country and, and, and men and women. So uh, it was just the way it was. So I call it kind of a semi dear John. However, uh, in my unit, I do remember a guy who got a, he got the hard dear John. He got the big one. And I'll just, I, I can remember it pretty well because there's some humor to it. He gets, you know, uh, he gets his letter from his girlfriend and he's reading and he says, what the hell is she doing going out with Ronnie? They're going to the beach next week. Who's this Ronnie guy? Well, she, this is terrible, blah, blah. I'm never opening a letter from her again. God, you know, he went on and on. So she, he gets some other letters. He's not opening and he's throwing them down. He's all beside himself. And finally he goes home, okay? doesn't look her up when he goes home. Two weeks later, approximately, she comes and visits him and she says, Denny, why didn't you come and see me? You're home now. I wanted to see you. I'm, you know, I wanted to be your girlfriend. He goes, well, you were going out with that guy, Ronnie. What would you expect me to do? She says, what guy, Ronnie? That's my friend, Rhonda. Okay. So he <laughs> mistook the name Ronnie, her nickname for a guy's name, of course, understandable. And uh, well, he was just beside himself up and down. So that's kind of a a funny story, if you will, those things happen, but um, there's always a, a guy that got it and say, look, man, you know, as shipmates, buddies, you always say, look, there's other fish in the sea. You're a young guy. Everything will be all right. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's tough to take if you get one of those. And if you're so romantically inclined that uh, you think that the world's going to end, uh, it could be a, a morale, uh, a morale breaker for a while. I was, I, I got married on my way. I had, <clears throat> I had a month off between training at Fort Bragg and training at Fort Bliss, so I got I got we got married in there, and so uh, so so there were no dear Johns, mm -hmm. so, so fortunately. And but a dear John could not just be a girlfriend breaking up with you. Could it be a wife saying I'm I'm oh, divorcing yeah. you? Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. And so yeah, that would be highly tied into the morale of how you're feeling while you're while you're away from home, and you know, you know pining to be back, pining to be with the person you want to be with, and you know. That's your connection, I guess. Um, but th those aren't the only letters that people uh, would receive. They received letters from what their their family or their friends, you know, as well. And those weren't titled anything. Those weren't Dear John type letters. Those were just, you know, family it correspondences. Could, that's right. It could be Dear Son or, or Hey, buddy, how you doing? And, and I recall uh, pretty vividly a lot of my my guys, my male friends would write to me. Oh, man, the pirates are doing this. You have to remember, there's no Internet back then. Okay, it, our only connection was snail mail. And in Southeast Asia, the Stars and Stripes kind of government sanctioned newspaper. And in the Navy, you had the fleet broadcast where they would just give you some scores or some highlights and things like that. So communications from the outside world was very scarce. So when you got your letters, that was your contact back home. You want to know what your buddies were doing as, as boring as they would say it was. And I, I recall some letters very, very much because especially this time of year. They'd write to me and say, oh, Don, 
weather really is bad again and man we're you know we can't go out and play basketball and, da, 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 da. and but you wanted you, you can envision that as you were eight thousand miles away you can envision what their life was like they're doing the same thing that we did back two years ago or so but you wanted to hear from that because that was your that was your connection back to the world which we called the united states back then jim if you remember yep, what's happening in the world whenever a new guy would come in almost first thing you'd go up to him, hey man what's happening in the world and uh, that was our connection when we got our letters back and forth. And again, it was called snail mail. Fortunately, in the Navy, we got our mail pretty quickly. And you, I know, Jim, you were probably, uh, when you were out in the bush, uh, your mail wasn't as frequent as others. Well, I, I, was, I was fortunate. I, I didn't have a typical tour. So I, 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 had a, I was with a five-man team. We also had a four-man district team. And we lived in a compound that was a four, former special forces camp. And we didn't move, even though we were supposed to be mobile, because everyone we were advising was right there in this one place. There was no rural population, so we got a we got a we got a, a work chopper almost every day. Not not every day, and so the mail came whenever the chopper came, but it didn't always come. It would come in batches. You might go a week, and then you'd get six or seven letters. Uh, Jim, were you, Jim, were you APO or were you FPO? Uh, APO. APO. And Sean, what that is, whenever you address the letter, uh, Jim was in the Army, so he would be APO, Army Post Office. Post I was in the Navy, mine would be FBO, Fleet Post Office. Mine was APO SF 96399. There you go. And so, and so that got it to me. And it's all you needed. You didn't need anything yeah. else except a name. Yeah. But um, but mail, mail would come in batches. And we, of course, when we were in the field on an operation, uh, for, for the way we worked, there was no resupply. When we left on the operation, either by truck or by by helicopter, we were the only communication we had occasionally was by radio. So there was no food, no water, no mail. If we were out for seven days, when we would get back, you'd have a stack of things waiting for you uh, on you, which which was interesting because uh, in the book I wrote, I said I wrote every night. That's really not true. I, I, I wrote most nights. But um, when I go to the field, I would write. I guess one thing to bring up is one of the things in all the email I wrote was the live omission. I never told them what was going on tactically. My wife actually thought that for the time I was there, I was at a resort guarding the swimming pool, sort of, and there was never a tactical mention. And so in writing mail to other people who were going to be talking to her, I never said a thing. And I, for, for, for 50 years, I, 50 years, I thought this was right, but after writing the book, I've started reading, thanks to Kindle and all those things, I've started reading a lot of the books that have been written by people in different jobs in mine, the, the helicopter, artillery, whatever you want. And I was really surprised. And this is what I love about the Veterans Breakfast Club is we find out we all did the same thing and we don't know it. Everyone said, um, mm -hmm. I never told anyone what was going on because I didn't want them to worry. Yeah. I didn't want my mom to worry. And so, you know, it's all we all like kept this big secret. And so when I would go to the field on the five or seven day operation, I would actually write an email, I'd write a letter mm -hmm. and write a bunch of them. Mm -hmm. And I would date them during the dates that I was in the field, give them to the team medic who didn't go to the field. He was there and he would drop one in the mailbox, mm -hmm. in the mailbag for the chopper to pick up on the appropriate day. Mm -hmm. So it looked like I was always in camp. Mm -hmm. I was never out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and so, uh, you know, uh, that, that's just the way I did it was, again, it was part of the ruse of trying to, keep Linda from knowing, you know, just exactly what was going on and how bad things really were. Yeah, I, I, you know, sanitizing the letters, I think, was uh, probably the norm because a lot of, and I think a lot of guys, when they wrote, Jim, um, if they were out on an operation or something, when they came back or had time to write, they didn't want to go back to that, okay? They wanted to say, oh, it's hot here. 
Uh, we just got a gift. It, it, the letters are almost so much the same. Send more gift bags, uh, gift uh, gift boxes to us, care packages, they were called. And, and send the sweetened Kool-Aid, not the unsweetened Kool-Aid. And, and make sure that you get us some dry socks or whatever. You know, the letters were almost all the same. I've read, there's several books, and we're going to touch base on that, Sean, I think, and some videos out about uh, letters home. And most of them are so similar because it's the same. We want this. How's everybody doing? Kiss the dogs for me. You know, what's how about what? How about them buckos? What are they doing this mm -hmm. uh, this season? How are they going to be? You know, and I can't wait to get home. As soon as I get home, make sure that you have something for me. Blah blah blah. But uh, it's interesting because most did not. However, Sean, I think you're going to read the letter that I had sent you from my cousin who was killed in action in 1966. It's an emotional letter, and it's also a historical letter. I think it. I think it's going to come across well, Sean. Definitely. Here, I'll bring up a picture of him before. Uh, before I read the letter, I, so when you say sanitize, it was a personal sanitization of the experience you were having, not necessarily the the government or the army, military's sanitization of tactical information that could be within the letter. But that was happening as well, right? No, no. The, none of my letters were ever censored or opened. Oh, interesting. Okay. I think that stopped in World War II. Right. And I think you'll touch base on that. Yeah, but nobody read it. There was yeah, no, no one, one reading read my letters mail. either. Right. There was no one reading our mail. Okay. Well, you should be, uh, for those watching on YouTube, you should be seeing a picture of his name's Mike Nemchik. <laughs> Mike Nemchik there. Um, and this picture was taken. Do you know? Uh, yeah. He was killed in uh, uh, February 22nd, 1966. One week shy of his 19th birthday, we could see the helicopters in the back. They were going on what was called Operation Masher, okay, in Bongsong Province. There was a heavy influx of uh, North Vietnamese coming south. Uh, they knew they had to stop them. So his letter tells of his feelings uh, volunteering for a mission that he knew that he was not coming back from. And this mm -hmm. was his last letter to his mother. So that was probably written sometime mid-February 1966. And uh, this is how the letter goes? Hello, Mom. I hope you are fine. I'm writing this letter on the eve of my departure to a place called, uh, you said, Bong San. Yeah. I'm going there on a 30 to 90 day hurricane patial. You've probably heard a lot about this place in the news. We've killed over 600 VC in the last two weeks there. Mom, I'll be truthful. Our team volunteered to go on a suicide patrol there. We're not expected to come back. I don't want you to, to worry because I know God will only let the right thing happen. I feel I must go because the sooner we get this war over, the sooner all the guys get to go home again. Our mission is extremely important in helping to end this rotten war. I feel glad and proud to aid in this mission. I just want you to know that I'm doing this because I want to. I volunteered. I could have backed out if I had wanted to. I love everyone at home, and I feel sure that I'll be back home okay and on time next year. So I guess I'll close now and write again when I get the chance. Say hello to everyone for me and give them my love. Love always, Mike. P.S. Please don't worry. God will watch over me. So that's the type of letter. that You have to remember that was early in the war. Uh, the, uh, Mike was 18 years old when he wrote that. Uh, like I said, probably a week or so before he was killed. And uh, that that letter was delivered uh, almost the same time as the telegram that his mother received that he was KIA. Remembering in 66, that's how they they notified people by uh, Western Union telegram. So uh, that letter is very poignant, I think, and it has a historical background. 
what was interesting, uh, the operation that he was on was actually called Operation Nasher, but then it was changed to Operation like Blowing Wind because they didn't want it to sound so harsh like Operation Masher. They wanted, they were beginning to say, we don't want to show this, uh, uh, this war as being so violent or whatever. It was, it was odd that they changed the name of that. We always wondered about that too. So uh, Mike was a brave young man and he was a very faithful man, as you can tell. So mm -hmm. I thought that letter uh, was poignant because not all the letters were back and forth. How you doing? You know, uh, can't wait to get home. He was actually saying what he was going to do and why he did it. Yeah, and I I found that to be not only unusual but somewhat historical, and I'm glad you shared it with us today, Sean. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you shared it with me, and really, I can't kind of imagine writing that letter. You know, you're 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 telling your your mom like, hey, this is really dangerous. I don't know if I'll come back, but this is what I want to do, and I want you to be okay with you know if yeah. I'm if I'm gone. You're honestly saying you're actually saying goodbye to your mother. Yeah. Yeah, at 18, I, I, at, yeah. At, eight, at 18 years old. He was, you know, graduated high school in June of 65, in country November of 65, killed in action February 66. So you can see how fast that time frame was. Yeah. And for that young man to uh, uh, write that type of uh, heartfelt letter uh, stays with you. Certainly. And so uh, his mother kept the letter? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Not all the letters, I'm sure, uh, from the front are probably as difficult to write or, uh, you know, difficult to receive. Um, what about receiving, I, I mean, other than the Dear John letters, but we're receiving sort of bad news from home. If a family member had passed away, things like that, you know, did you, either of you receive that or know someone who did receive a letter like that? I, I, I got a letter with some bad news in it, but it wasn't anyone dying. Mm -hmm. uh, my wife and I dated our emails, our, our letters, but we made a mistake. We should have numbered them. So I got a mail. I got mail one day, which said the mechanic said the damage wasn't too bad on the car. It'll still pass inspection. So, and it went on and I'm going mechanic damage car. What happened? Well, that immediately is a reply to her, which takes maybe a week to get to her mm -hmm. reply back takes a week to get back. So it's, you're two weeks wandering around. Is my wife. Okay. You yeah. know, is she, is she doing, to me what i'm doing to her not telling the truth you know yeah. is this worse than i thought and and so th there was always whenever anything came in that was that was potentially negative it was always this fear of did it really go bad and is this not the whole story so from from from, the, from losing people in the family i was fortunate at the time i was there because it didn't happen to anyone the people at home yeah. were sanitizing their letters as well you never knew you yeah. never knew you never knew you know you know he's over there who knows what he's doing let's not make him feel bad so you you never really knew what was you know if you were getting the whole story you know i re i recall getting a real bad newsletter it was uh, 71 and um my my real very dear friends the, uh, of the family neighbors uh, where i lived at in mckeesport uh, there was a devastating fire where their 13 year old daughter and her 13 year old girlfriend had a sleepover they succumbed in the fire and the family was just the whole neighborhood was just shocked and, and things. And some of my buddies wrote to me and uh, said, told what happened, sent me the press clipping from the McKeesport paper and such like that. And I felt so badly because I was still a young guy, 19. And, you know, those things hadn't hit me yet. Okay. I know that the, the death of my cousin in 1966 and, and other uh, passings of grandparents, things like that, but it really hadn't hit me from a friend standpoint. 
And I remember, man, I had the blues for a couple of days. I saw, I, and it, it was the grief that you felt for their loss, but it was the fact that you couldn't do anything about it. Okay. I'm right. 8,000 miles away. You know, all we can do is write letters, uh, all that kind of stuff. And that, that's what hit me the worst. I said, I want to call them. I want to talk to them. And uh, we, we had that ability, but we really, it wasn't that open, you know, so I couldn't have gone to the Red Cross and say, because it was just family friends, it wasn't a family matter. So I kind of uh, sucked it up and, you know, let that stay with me. But uh, uh, that, that's the bad news that I got. And interesting, they used to have, uh, I used to be the lead operator in the uh, communications for submarines broadcast out of the fleet center in Guam. We communicate with all the submarines in the Western Pacific. It's called CSUB, Communication Submarines. And they would uh, send through RF radio frequency uh, communications to the submarines in the in the ocean. And when there wasn't something operational going on, uh, there was what's called family grams, and they were just two sentence uh, uh, sent two sentences that would say, "Hi, John. Uh, Bobby got an A in uh, mathematics. Uh, can't wait till you get home. See you in six months." They were just these short blurbs. However, they were also the ability to say, "Hey." Your grandfather passed away and i it's my understanding that those family grams i think the sailors particularly on submarines can opt out of getting that bad news message if they chose to they say, well, i'd rather not hear it i'll hear it when i get on get ashore or something and i know when we were uh, in the fleet center during uh, operation linebackers uh, one and two and such where there was such heavy bombing going on in vietnam we were sending uh, uh messages uh air operations and coordinates and things out to the ships in the Gulf of Tonkin. And we were just, we were working 12 hours a day. We had six send circuits. They were just busy sending flash and immediate style messages, uh, highly operational. And it just wasn't airtime for the routine messages of family grams or family messages uh, and such. And as they built up in the stacks of, we had ticker tape actually uh, that was used to transmit uh, once those build up, uh, periodically, they would put them in burn bags, Jim, and they would be picked up and flown out to the carriers at sea and then distributed as they could print them out. So it's not to take radio air time. They would just print them out and get them the guys, which would really delay the whole thing. So those were interesting days because uh, communications was oftentimes choppy. It depends on what happens uh, uh, during the uh, the war effort. Again, the, those uh, circuits were out there for operational purposes and the, mm -hmm. uh, the family grams and stuff like that. Yes, they were important. Yes, it was a morale issue. However, uh, they just had to uh, dedicate those circuits to operations. Mm -hmm. yeah, we, you know, one of the things, you know, mail is a two-way street. And so, you know, we, on the team, when we were in camp, we, when we were in camp, we pulled radio watch, uh, depending on how many people were there. When I got there, we were pulling it every, uh, every, every eighth night. And then it, it was down to like every third night when we finally decided we couldn't pull radio watch anymore. But one of the things you would do at night would be to write, write letters. Mm -hmm. And we'd, we'd shut the generator. We ran generators for the camp. We shut them down at midnight and started them up at 6 a.m. So between midnight and 6 a.m., we had a Coleman lantern. So you'd sit there and write corners. And you'd, you'd try to sit in the shadow because, again, this is something else I always worried about until I read, wrote the book and then the guys on the team read it, is uh, we'd set it to radio in case anything was going on. On and we couldn't contact our, our, our headquarters at province, but we could pick up radio calls from helicopters. And every now and then you get they don't usually fly at night, but if they did, we could always set up an emergency light and bring them in if they were having trouble. Mm -hmm. But you we always had this vision in your mind of the Viacom knew where we lived, where we slept, they could find the find where we were sleeping and you know, in blindfolded. 
She always had this vision of this Viet Cong running through the door with a with a sapper with an explosive charge on his back, pulling the fuse. And so you kind of hide in the hide in the shadow somewhere with your M16 in your hand, hoping you could take him out before he pulled the fuse. Now, while I was there, that never happened. It did happen at our province headquarters, unfortunately. Uh, but um, but you'd write letters, and and we we it was a it was an interesting two way street because. Uh, like you said, they're like the emails we write now during the pandemic. Hi, how are you? Things are fine. But uh, one day we, uh, we we cracked open a can of 45 caliber ammunition and the inspection card in it was dated 1950. So I, so, so I turned it over and wrote a Mother's Day card on the back and sent it off to my mother-in-law. <laughs> And um, uh, this is a th this is this is this is a Claymore mine. This is what's left of a Claymore mine bag. Here, let me uh, spotlight you for everyone on YouTube if you're watching. Basically, this is a Claymore mine bag, which I cut up and I wrote a letter on the back to one of Linda's uncles. And so, uh, and, and so, you know, we we basically tried tried to do whatever we could to to keep things as, as lively as we could. Uh, and, and again, I think it was to try and convince people that we weren't really in, 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 in bad shape over here. We were doing pretty well. So, but, but that, that was it. The other thing that's interesting, and I, maybe you want to bring this up, is, is, is our, we, we didn't use stamps. Yeah, this that's the is, other thing. Yeah. And we just wrote the word free up here. And the reason I'm hiding this is we had to put our social security number on this. And mm. so in those days, we had serial numbers. Then they switched to social security numbers because there was no internet. No one cared. So now everyone hides them. So so basically, you, you put your name, social security number, and then you wrote free over here and the address, and it went away. So we could write as many letters as we had time to write, and it didn't cost us a penny to, to mail. I don't know what it's like now for the for the soldiers that, are, that were in Afghanistan and Iraq. Probably the same. Probably the same if they used snail mail at all because they had you know electronic communications. But interesting with that envelope, and it's funny because my wife was, we were talking about this this morning over coffee. And she remembers writing, she had some pen pals uh, back in the day, and she remembers uh, writing to uh, a couple uh, GIs. And she said, I always remember the envelopes. They had this red, white, and blue border, okay? It just as you showed up, Jim, and oftentimes the letter, the stationery that we got often would have your, like mine was USS Constellation, have an image on the ship on it in, in like this real light blue. And in, in uh, the communication stations I was in, you would go to the PX and get a box of envelopes and uh, uh, paper. And they would have that uh, uh, image of that particular duty station ship or, you know, in, you know, map of Vietnam or, or wherever. And uh, many people who have saved their letters, uh, you can, they're very distinctive. Okay. It was like the old airmail letter. I think if some of the, us uh, of the era can remember those airmail letters, they were real thin paper and yes, uh, free to pay postage. Yeah. Well, what was interesting is we, we got these, uh, we used to get what was called an SP or a sundry pack, SESP pack. And the numbers were, it was good for one man for 100 days or 100 men for one day. So five-man team should get one every, what, 20 days. The four-man district team should get one every 25. And we got one a month. But that, that had cigarettes. And we always had candy. And that candy, that's where we got the candy to give to the kids in the village. But we would get a stack of envelopes and letters and, and ballpoint pens. And so this is where our stationery came from. And that's probably why they're all the same because they were being supplied by the government in these SP. Yeah, did they have those stale chiclets? Those little oh yeah. 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 The, the, the one candy I couldn't give away was they, they had these Hershey's tropical chocolate bars, which would not melt. It's and you could, put them in a, in a, you could put them in a, in a canteen cup over a, a block of C4 and the stuff would just get gooey. And so we could get it, give away anything, but not that stuff. We couldn't give the Hershey Top Real chocolate bars away. The other the Hershey kids, bar. 
because the kids didn't want them or no, they wouldn't take them. <laughs> they, wouldn't, they wouldn't melt it was terrible and were they the little three packs of cigarettes or three yeah, or four yeah. packs and it was either tent cigarettes or uh uh i don't think they did the menthols because menthols were so popular i think it was a kent cigarette it was always like an off brand old gold or something and well those were in the sea rations they were in the well, we got in esp packs we'd get 10 cartons of cigarettes with 10 packages each that's 100 packages hence yeah. Uh, you know, one pack a day. And it was, I didn't smoke. We also got cigars and a package of chewing tobacco mm -hmm. and no one chewed. That went to the village. But mm -hmm. uh, we, this is called winning the hearts and minds and helping winning their the health. But, um, but it was always interesting because, you know, you'd have Marlboro, you'd have the good, the, the good cigarettes and you have Chesterfields and <laughs> no one wants. So they would divvy it up. It was quite raucous. But if, if someone was not there, if someone was in Saigon or Benoit, uh, or out on an operation. If we were out on an operation, when the pack came in, when they got back, they got what was left. They got, and, you know. And and then every now and then we'd open a pack that had been opened in the rear, and you all the good stuff had been taken out, and everything was like all ten packs of Ch ten cartons of Chesterfields. Oh, so, that, that was one of the reasons we really didn't like the some of the rear echelon guys. <laughs> there, there's uh, a name for that that we won't we won't share right. with the public. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, the acronym is RIMF, but anyway. <laughs> Technically, like someone sending a letter to you, they had to address it with just your name and your your ship or your uh or APO. your your APO number. And where APO. would they drop it off? You yeah. did, did you just go to the post office and drop yeah. it off? Yeah. Mm -hmm. see, like, in, my case, in my case, on the uh, when I was on the ship, it would just be my name, uh, USS Constellation, FPO San Francisco one two three four five, and the mm -hmm. FPO postmasters would put it in the constellations box and then it would finally get fine sorted and and uh in many cases like i was a radio man so i was an rm3 so that would give some designation that i was in the communications division that would help them sort it but yeah they could just uh there wasn't uh 123 main street now some of them could say fort hood texas or whatever whatever command was and by the time it got to the command then it was fine sorted and it, it got to you believe it or not uh, I just said Lieutenant Jim Chester. Roberts of Republic of Vietnam, APO. APO. Yeah. So at some point, though, it, it changes hands from the United States Post Office to the military, and then the military has to further okay. sort of divide them, that's divide right. it. And that's something that interests me is because, you know, you were on ship, Don, and you were, you know, in the Bush gym, but, you know, that's what you said, like getting mail was just, that's where it would, it would find its way to you. Yeah. And e even if you were out in the ship and, and sailing, they would, if a plane would come in with the infer with with the mail, and that's, the bag, that's how you it was an or orange bag, and they would dump it on the deck, and the guys would pick it up. Actually, the, the the ship had a fleet had a ship's post office, and there's actually a designated rate in the Navy postal clerk. I was going to ask city. that. That you took yeah. the yeah. That that was my it's, next question is like, yeah. who, I don't think we've ever on VBC ever had a mail clerk uh, on to tell their story about like getting mail in and sorting it, and you know, oh, yeah. boy, be interesting, you to, to, interesting to find one because. Uh, It'd be interesting to see if they still have that rate also. But uh, back then it was a postal clerk and many guys, I, I know where I live, uh, the local post office up there, the two guys that switched back and forth, they were both veterans. And as soon as uh, you got discharged, you had veterans preference. You became, you went to work for the post office. Okay. It was mm -hmm. a kind of a natural transition to you. And uh, many of them retired from it with the government pension and everything like that. But yes, uh, once it got out of the uh, regular post office hands, it went into the military's hands and I got everything that was ever sent to me. So uh, that said, uh, they did a good job trying to do it. I think they realized what it meant to people. And I think Jim is right. Sometimes you always get a guy who's going to pilfer something and that happens. <laughs> Usually that gets policed internally. You see another, you see another guy doing that, man. And you tell him it's the wrong thing to do. What about the guys on the other end? So that said, uh, 
they did a good job, especially on the ship. Uh, we got our mail very regularly. Of course, I was on a carrier, so planes mm -hmm. were coming in and out, and, uh, helicopters and stuff. So we had regular stuff. Actually, we got the mail for our sister ships. For example, we'd have a destroyer escort and a, a cruiser alongside us or an oiler or something like that. So we would get their mail. They would bag it up. And then whenever we were doing underway replenishments, which is a whole operation within itself, they would highline it. They would shoot a line over to the ship and send bags of different things over and actually mm -hmm. personnel. They would bosun's chair. They would ship, you know, push them over uh, on this line and, you know, take them across from one ship to another with the ocean bobbing up and down below you. But they would send mail that way too. So uh, uh, there, it was a, a good, at least in our time, 1970-ish, uh, that was a pretty fluid operation. For which, us, I was, I was in three corps, which, uh, which where Saigon is. And so I, I assume the mail went to the Corps headquarters in three corps. They sorted it out by province and yeah. the mail went to province by helicopter. And the province, uh, probably, the S1, probably the S1 shop just sorted it out based on where we were. And we get a mailbag when the, when the work chopper would come in, we'd take an, a bag, we'd take a mailbag out with what we were sending and exchange them. And I think they were orange bags, if I remember right there. They just bright orange. I think they were. Red. I think they were indeed orange. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so we 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 basically had film. We, we somehow each district team. We didn't have it. We were with the district team. They had a movie projector, and yeah. uh, we had four. We had four district. We had four districts in the, in the province, and they get five films. And so you four films, you'd get one a week. And so mm -hmm. you'd send, you, you know, you'd send one in on Monday, and then one would come in Tuesday, and you could show it. And even the Vietnamese, they like the westerns. Vietnamese, even though they couldn't understand a word, they would. They, we, we would just hang a sheet outside, put the projector on it, and the RF troops would come in and, and, and with their families and watch the the Indians and the and the cavalry. Maybe they realized it really wasn't much different from what we've been doing for a hundred years. <laughs> Maybe. Um, well, that that brings me up to our our sort of history segment here. I'm gonna I'm gonna share my screen uh, and bring up a picture. Don, you you had mentioned something about you know V-mail. So we have email now. We had letters, Vietnam. We had V-mail back in World War II. Um, Don, you want to speak a bit about this? And we could also show the video. I do. Let me do. I'll uh, open up the video. And here's this uh, fetching young lady writing to her uh, GI overseas, of course, and be with him at every mail call. That's how important it was. They em emphasized every mail call because your day was often designated. I had a good day. I got three letters today. And uh, often a bad day was when I didn't get any didn't get any mail. But what was funny, we'd read everybody else's mail. Guy would read his, hey, come on, read my letter too, you know. And so you'd get some uh, uh, some feedback of what was going on back in the world. But you can see V-mail is private, reliable, and patriotic. And uh, when you show the video, it will be explained, I think, very well uh, that uh, this was a, a way that there's so much mail going through space. Space was an issue. So the I think it was the Kodak company developed this. Uh, it's called Recadec. It was a microfilm in, in short, you know, make it, make it easy to understand. And I think this film will explain it very well. So, Sean, if you're ready, let her roll. Okay, everyone should see this if you're on YouTube, but you'll hear it audio. This is a video uh, from uh, World War II era, correct? That's correct. These openings are great. They really are. You have to remember, these were shown in movie theaters. Yeah, that's where everybody got their information from yeah. the front. There's no TV back then. Right. New service speeds mail to U.S. troops, is what it says on screen. Letters from home. 
Each day, millions of them are sent to American servicemen fighting on distant battlefronts. Because of a war postal system called V-Mail, they can be flown throughout the world, reaching distant points safely and with amazing speed. This plane is landing in Italy. Each bag of mail it carries contains 136,000 letters. Back in America, each letter was reduced to a tiny strip of film. And on screen, there's a huge mountain of bags, of mail bags. Now near the front, automatic machines enlarge each overseas letter from 16 millimeter motion picture negative to a four by five inch print. These strips are dried, carefully inspected, and cut into individual letters. Machines fold them and put them into envelopes. In this one laboratory, over 300,000 letters a day are handled. A complete locator card system takes care of mail incorrectly addressed. In the censorship section, anything that might reveal vital military information is cut out. call, Americans overseas receive their letters. Nearly every transport plane that spans the ocean brings its quota of mail. In just a few days, V-mail letters from home reach servicemen in every theater of war. Well, that's incredible here. I'll stop the share. Um, so, you know, what's so interesting is that, like, the idea of shrinking down something bigger to bite size and then blowing it back up again it's kind of what you know the internet is like if i'm going to send you a big long email it's going to shrink it down shoot it over to you and then you blow it back up but that to me is an enormous operation and just see, to be yeah do you, you see the one guy with the, that old-fashioned paper cutter yeah you, know, you get a big strip of paper and he's cutting it to size eight and a half mm -hmm. by eleven or whatever and that right. was his job the whole day man you can imagine eight hours just cutting that uh, paper cutting that paper so mm -hmm. uh, and the vastness of it those huge bags of mail and all this uh um, communications going, correspondence going back and forth it meant a lot and that was only at the end of world war ii that ceased uh, of course we didn't have it back in our era jim and korea i don't believe had it either and then of course now the uh, people now have internet so they email and uh, have uh, communications of much easier uh, methods but uh, back then i just found that so fascinating when i was doing some research for today's show I just what what struck me is I just wonder if that that bag, that stack of mailbags was was every day did they get a stack every day or was that one week's worth because yeah. you know it's uh, one of the things I've always said about about jobs in the military is better the devil you do than the devil you don't I mean I'll take the jungle over Afghanistan any day and believe it or not right. I, think I would right. take right. walking walking the missions in the jungle and dealing with that pile of email yeah yeah I mean it, 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 that 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 almost scared me more than than the jungle it's just overwhelming. Um, yeah, certainly and incredibly overwhelming. It's, uh, uh, I just can't, it's, it's hard for me to fathom the operation that the military decided to take on to be able to get all of that hundreds of thousands of letters in and out of the front simply from around and, and censor them as well. Yeah, so you and have someone else read your letters. Uh, I don't know if that would be an interesting job or not because you know, some of the letters probably contain a lot of, uh, uh, Good personal each yeah. other and stuff and uh, guys are guys back 
in the military, you start you know tell you, but you should see what I read out of Johnny's letter, et cetera. But uh, that would be an interesting job. I'd really like to talk to someone that had that task and see what was really like being a censor. Did you just look for the operational things, or are you looking for something more, uh, uh, more, more salacious? <laughs> I have a hard enough time reading my own writing. I'm sure it was difficult reading everybody's yeah. handwriting. Yeah. Of course, well, then again, back then, then people were trained a bit better on being able to write a letter. They had cursive writing, and we were all taught that, Jim, of course. I can remember grade school, they had the cursive writing, uh, each letter above the blackboard, and that's how you learn. Interesting, look at the Civil War, uh, Ken Burns' documentary, and how they portrayed these letters, how fluid their writing, and most of these guys were farmers, they were not educated men, and uh, how beautiful their writing was, uh, just from the, the, the uh, legibility of it, plus their wordings of things. It was far, far uh, impressive. And that's how that Civil War series, I think it gained so much popularity because they had the music behind it. And of course, the voice actors did a great job, but then they were actually reading these letters from guys at Gettysburg and Shiloh and all these horrific battles. <clears throat> they were writing letters back then. Mm -hmm. Well, you say, like you say, you know, logistics is a big part of winning a war. You've got to take yeah. care of your troops, and mail is, is 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 if you don't have the mail, you're you're not going to have the morale you need yeah. to do the job. That's you right. have to do. That's right. And did I don't in basic training, I don't think they use that as a lever. Oftentimes in basic, there's a risk a reward factor. Cigarettes were used like that. We talked about that a while ago. If you didn't perform that day well on the grinder, or if you didn't match up well with your classes, or you guys were messing around too much our draw instructor would say well you guys don't get your smoke break today you guys are screwing up and so you don't deserve a smoke break so you know that's it and i don't know if they use mail call like that and say well we're not going to get your mail to you today i i have my doubts because i remember getting mail in boot camp and uh i do remember i remember a couple guys who were already in the service sending me some contraband uh when i was in boot camp and i was kind of smart enough it was just some playboy pictures and such but i remember being told right away about the contraband so i threw my stuff away quickly i didn't you know hang on to it so uh, that those things happened though but i i don't think that was the point in, i don't think they withheld mail purposely but i think they watched what you were looking at well the interesting thing right when i was in basic and also when i was training troops we never would never hold mail up but what was interesting was when you had a change of location you change a station mm -hmm. uh your your mail could take a while to catch up and if a trainee were recycled, trainee, you know, you you you, you, you sprain an ankle real bad or get really sick, you could be you could be recycled back a week or two. That would take some time for the mail to catch up, um, which is probably not much different today than when you change your address at the post office. So, because, uh, yeah, in our case, our company uh, number would have changed. I was in company three fifty two, so if I would have gotten set back two weeks because of illness or uh, didn't perform well, then I would be in a different company. So they would have to sort that out. But you're absolutely right. There, that's how they. Um, they found you, okay? They uh, either through your company uh, designation or whatever. And I think interesting too, uh, uh, Sean. I had uh, one of the questions that popped up in my mind: Did the military make you correspond with your family? Because I remember in basic training, they said, "Look, here's." It was like almost like a pre-written card. You signed your name to it, and you sent it to your your parents. Arrive safely in Great Lakes. Uh, we'll call back later or something like that. We'll write soon. Here's my address. That's what it was. Here's my address, uh, RTC Great Lakes Company 352, Great Lakes, Illinois, 12345. And that's what it was. It was almost a pre-boilerplate uh, uh, postcard to get to your family to give them your address. And oftentimes, if guys chose not to write to their family, and uh, maybe even in-country particularly, and someone didn't hear from them for a long time, uh, many parents would go to the Red Cross or their congressman. And very, very quickly, a commanding officer would, or, would, would 
call you on the carpet and say, sit down here and write a letter. Okay, because mm -hmm. someone's asking about you. For whatever reason, you're not writing, write a letter and get this off my back. But so mm -hmm. the military, we'll just use the word encourage you to stay in touch with your, uh, your family. Now, the drill sergeant that I had, plus the drill sergeants that were in the company I, I was training officer, one of the things would, the drill sergeant would tell us, I better never get a call right. from the colonel about you not writing a letter home. Right. You know, huh. if, you, if you want to know pain, just don't write home. <laughs> I'm going to play a quick video here of uh, this is also uh, what is mail call? This is, I believe, I'm not sure if it's Air Force is something you sent me, Don. Um, I think it's so Army. <laughs> Army. Okay, so you'll hear this. Uh, you'll see this on the YouTube side, and you also see the, uh, hear this on the audio side. So about a minute, minute to forty here. It's basic training mail call. Mail call will be the best time of the day for you. It's a huge morale booster, and will show you that there is an outside world where people still think and care about you. Tip number one about mail call: encourage your friends and families to write letters and inform them that you won't have access to Facebook because you won't. Many of your friends and family won't write you, but don't feel bad. They have no idea what environment you'll be in at basic training, and they really can't relate. Mailing letters, cards, and family pictures, uh, even newspaper articles are okay for a family member to send you. Do not have food, alcohol, gum, pornography, or weapons sent to you. You're only inviting lots of physical exercise from the drill sergeants. Another tip is when sending mail, always encourage a return letter because again, mail call is the best time of the day. Bring lots of stamps with you to basic training too. Stamps are a great way to make friends. With an inexpensive donation like the price of a stamp, finding friends will be a piece of cake. You can receive as many letters as you want at basic training. Your time to write back may be limited though. Don't write anything in return letters you might regret later though. Just understand, you're in a high stress environment and your responses shouldn't upset the person you're writing. I have seen recruits tell their parents uh, they want to commit suicide. I have seen recruits tell their girlfriend they want to marry them. Yeah, a marriage proposal through a letter. Pretty romantic, but it happens a lot. I've seen it twice. Mail call will be your daily mental escape to your civilian life. So be sure to write down the addresses to your friends and family before you leave. And again, take lots of stamps with you. All right, so two things about this. <laughs> First one being him saying, I've seen this a lot. I've seen it twice. <laughs> I just found that to be funny. Um, but it, it, so that's a little different, though. It brings stamps with you where you guys used to be able to just write free on it, right? Only in country. Yeah. Only in oh, country. Yeah. only in country. Yeah. It, Meaning it, like if you were in Vietnam, you could write free on it. But if you were in U.S., you had you had to use a stamp. Correct. That's correct. Interesting. Um, well, he certainly hits home the fact of like, don't have anything sent to you because all you're only inviting physical, physical pain. <laughs> and, and they would. Well, they would. They knew every. Drill instructors had four sets of eyes. They're like your mother. They can look behind it. They seen behind their back. And if you were skylarking around or, or there was something fishy going on, uh, they knew right away. And then they they find out who did it and you did pay the price. And if you didn't pay the price, they made everybody else pay the price for you, which was even worse. Yeah. So it's better you took the punishment. Don't let your buddies take it for you. But uh, uh, that, it was interesting because some of it is common sense to us now. But you got a 17, 18, 19 year old kid, never been away from home. He's starting to write letters. Uh, oh my God, you should see what they're doing to me, and uh, et cetera. Everybody had a, a story that they were sending back to their, their buddies who had served before. 
And uh, they always come back and say, I remember when you told me how your drill instructor was making you run the grinder for five hours a day or whatever. And we had to do the same thing. So it wasn't anything unusual. So it was, it, it was quite a time. Uh, uh, we didn't have that type of instruct, instructional video back in our day, Jim. But uh, I think that was how the military does now. Of course, they do a lot of things online. And, and I think they're more transparent and more informative than back in our day, clearly. But uh, they would just tell us in so many words, uh, uh, don't do this don't have them send you that, and, you know, we'll leave it go with there. But well, one uh, of the things too about basic training and, and boot camp is it, when we were in, there were a lot of draftees. Yeah. Today, everyone's an all volunteer. Yeah. And so when, when I, when I, you know, I mean, for me, OCS was a six month grind. I didn't walk anywhere for five months. I ran for five months, but you know, now it's a three month, it's a three month se section. In, in my company, we started with 240 guys and there were about 120 of us left at the end. And so now it's a different entry situation and they want to get you through. And so in many ways, since you don't have a drafty military, uh, you can have sort of a different attitude in basic. Because when I was a training officer, when I, when, I was a, uh, when I was a trainee, we had a lot of guys who were just very angry. I could use stronger words to say what their attitude mm -hmm. was. And by and large, the attitude did, for some of them didn't get any better. Mm -hmm. and, and in AIT, Advanced Training in Fort Polk, we had a couple of guys who just didn't come back from the from the weekend. They just took off, mm -hmm. and so uh, I imagine that that the environment inside a basic training or a boot camp right now is probably a little more supportive and different. Yeah, it's understandably, you know, seeing some things on the media and just you know looking through YouTube's and stuff like that, it's a different environment, of course, it's a different world. And uh, clearly, the fact that they're, they're volunteers, so they want to be there in essence. And then you hear so many people. Uh, listening to some talk shows and things about the violence and how bad some of the youth are. Well, you should just throw them in the military and that'll straighten them out. No, it won't. Because number one, uh, there's not that tough drill instructor uh, uh, giving you corporal punishment and hands-on training, if you will. That, that doesn't happen anymore. And if you're not motivated, you're the worst thing that could be in a company. I don't want someone around me like that. And uh, that's why uh, when people say, oh, just throw them in the Marines or the Navy, they'll straighten them out. No, it doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way back in the day, although you always hear the stories. Well, the judge told me if I don't join the service, I'm going to go to jail. So here I am. And uh, sometimes that worked out, but sometimes it didn't either. But nowadays, that would never work out because the uh, uh, the training methods that the, have changed dramatically, of course, Jim. I think we could both attest to that. Back in the uh, 60s and 70s, it was a whole different world. So uh, uh, I think for the better. One too. of the things, one of the benefits for me, like I say, I my tour is very atypical. So, like I said, Everyone on the team was a pro. They were they were there for a career. The mm -hmm. Intel NCO was was a citizen soldier, as was I, mm -hmm. and so we did not have the problems that you would have in a large mm -hmm. line unit, a TLE unit that was pushing in the bush. You know, okay. uh, so so so, so you know, like I say, I come back with a whole world of experience. And the other thing that's changed is, like you say, you've now got all of this. I, you can't you can take your cell phone to basic training. I would assume I don't know if you can keep it, but there's a lot of very instant communication. I, I don't know what gravity mail has ordinary mail has today i mean i still write cards and i still write notes to people mm -hmm. and 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 from what i like people like getting a written note for every now and then yeah. and so yeah. I'm, i i find that a nice way to contact people on a special occasions indeed it is and especially you know the handwritten card uh, just a, a real quick story i got a, a handwritten note from a, a friend of mine from high school 50 some years ago we hadn't seen each other and we did just cross paths at an event I was leaving. She was coming in. Oh, Mary, it's good to see you. Oh, Don, uh, we'll see you next time. Well, uh, my uh, 
personal situation had changed. I was unable to go to some of the events and she had found out what had happened. My wife has cancer and uh, busy with treatments and some other things. So she had written the most beautiful handwritten letter uh, in cursive writing. I saved it because it was so heartfelt. If she would have sent the email with the same words, it, it would have it would have been nice, but it wasn't as nice as that handwritten letter. Um, so as our audience, if you've been listening in for the program, if this has sort of piqued your interest of like war letters, interesting, I wonder, you know, are they all just personal? Like, no one read these? Well, there's actually some places. So I'll share my screen here, and I'm going to put the link into the description as well. There's a place called the Chapman in Chapman University, the Center for American War Letters. Um, that that is uh, Chapman C H A P M A N dot edu. You can look up the Center for American War Letters. Uh, this is a unique and extensive manuscript collection of war letters from every American conflict, dating back all the way through Revolutionary War. Um, this is something, Don. You also sent to me. Uh, do you know anything about this? Have you ever submitted anything to them? I have not submitted anything, Sean. I just, when I came upon it, I says, boy, what a link this is to uh, people who are watching this podcast and how interesting this would be to just go back to and, and look and see how things from the different eras, uh, the different letters and, and what you can glean from that, uh, the emotions, some of it, some of it humorous, uh, some of it operationally say, you know, boy, this guy was headed out to uh, Normandy uh, uh, in two weeks if, uh, if he could and, and all this other stuff. So I just thought this was a very, very, interesting site that you can, I, I know I'll spend a lot of time looking at it. This is something that I, you know, your uh, Mike, uh, Mike Nemchik's letter could potentially be uh, submitted to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you also sent me, uh, and I'll also have these links into the description. Um, did the screen change for you? Yes. Okay, great. Yes. So uh, on Amazon, there are several different books that Don sent over to me, one being Dear America, Letters Home from Vietnam. Uh, this is one of the books that uh, you sent over to me. Another is also Letters from Vietnam, edited by Bill Adler. Uh, and another book, uh, the third one being uh, also called Letters from Viet Vietnam, uh, Dennis Hoy. Um, I'm sure there's probably books uh, from letters uh, of different eras, letters home from World War II, letters home from uh, potentially Iraq and Afghanistan. If there isn't one, I'm sure that there will be eventually. Uh, but there are resources to our audience. There are resources out there of, of places you can go and websites you can visit, books you can pick up that produce and print the letters that our GIs uh, uh, wrote. Uh, so I just find that to be a really excellent way for America to document the personal stories uh, of all of the veterans that that served. Yes, there's a Center for Vietnam History in Texas Tech University. Actually, I'm in touch with them. Uh, and they were one of our guests on uh, the Vetathon uh, earlier this year on Memorial Day. And they have a vast collection. Uh, I actually wrote, I emailed them because I needed some help trying to navigate through their uh, their homepage and because their system is, um, their uh, collection is so vast and a very nice uh, uh, woman called me and offered her help to me to help navigate this room. We struck up a really good conversation and uh, I had sent her a, a book that we had written about our uh, uh, experiences here in McKeesport where we lost 23 men and uh, sent her that book. They're going to catalog that and if some historian wanted to find out what was life in the, what was life like in the Vietnam era, uh, here's one of the things that would appear for them, and they would help them go through that. So uh, there's it's Texas Tech University and uh, ttu.edu, and it's the uh, Center for uh, Vietnam History. It, it's amazing. I, I'd like to go down to Lubbock, Texas someday and spend some time there. Hopefully uh, that'll be in my near future. 
And if you've been watching The Scuttlebutt for some time, you may have heard our season seven premiere episode, episode one. Um, and if you haven't watched The Scuttlebutt, that's fine. But check out our conversation uh, with Douglas Terrell. Um, Douglas uh, came onto the podcast. He took letters from Revolutionary Time all the way up to today, uh, condensed them, edited them into a one-man, one-hour performance. Uh, mm -hmm. It's something that I'd love to bring to Pittsburgh, honestly, if I could ever, if I could ever figure out a theater to bring him to. Uh, but he does this. He's a civilian who is passionate about veteran stories, dove into letters home uh, from uh, men abroad, and uh, took all these letters and, and created a one-man show. And he performs that going across the country, uh, performing around. Um, the Douglas Terrell, look him up. It's called um, it's called the American Soldier. is the is the one man play that he tours. Uh, so as audience, uh, check out my conversation with him on the Scuttlebutt earlier this season. But also check out his website uh, because it's it, it's incredible what he did, taking these letters and, and turning it into a, a performance that people would be able to go and see and and hear them and see them acted out live and and just hear the words uh, spoke out loud. Todd, I wonder if that would be a good opportunity for soldiers and sailors to have that performance, uh, soldiers and sailors museum here in Pittsburgh to have that performance uh, uh, in their venue, uh, because that, that's I'm going to have to look that up, actually, because that sounds real interesting to me. Certainly, that's a great option. I will um, we, uh, here in Pittsburgh uh, for our audience. We have soldiers and sailors uh, museum here in the Oakland area, right now by University of Pitt. And uh, that'd be a great place for, for him to be able to perform that. I'm sure that they would love that. It's a great stage for that, in fact, yeah. as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, I want to thank both of you for coming on the program to talk about this, because this it, it's a much deeper subject than you'd think just hearing about, okay, letters from, letters from the front. Um, but really, there's so much that's involved in it and so much... I'd say emotion and, and personal history and just, you know, like you said, the, the letters of get, receiving a handwritten letter, not only at the front, but at home, meant so much for everybody. And it's still something that I'm sure that they do now, even with email. Um, but it's certainly a subject that I, I hadn't really thought of until you brought it to my attention, Don. So thank you. You're welcome. And thank and you, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you, you, you really made some good contributions. Uh, we're glad to have you today. Well, I was glad to be here. And, you know, this is you know, this is one of the better aspects of the war to talk about. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, to our audience, please like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. Uh, and thank you so much for watching the podcast. Uh, I'm sure, Don, you, you know, this is your second or third program with us uh, here on the Scuttlebutt. Jim, I'd love to have you back for another episode uh, in the near future. Um, and uh, to our audience, please come back next week for uh, another future episode. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. As sort of bonus content, uh, you've heard me speak about the VBC's Happy Hour, which we hold every single Monday night on Zoom at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we noticed that in a recent interview with the Marine Corps veteran Jack McLean, author of the book Loon, uh, that he spent some time during that interview talking about letters that he wrote home. So we thought we'd clip that segment of the interview and place it here at the end of the podcast for you, uh, just to give you some background. Kids like Jack McLean, they didn't go to Vietnam. He was a graduate of the elite Phillips Academy in Andover, Mass., but he decided to put off college and enlist in the United States Marine Corps instead. Uh, a year later, Jack landed in Vietnam as a grunt to serve in an infantry company in the northernmost reaches of South Vietnam. And what happened there is the centerpiece of his superb memoir, Loon, which there is a link in the description here if you would like to take a look at his book. Um, but enjoy uh, this snippet of his interview with Ken Kazak on the VBC Happy Hour. Thank you again for watching. So you had shared earlier that you wrote 102 letters home, and I guess marines and service people don't write letters anymore they email home but and it was your mom saved all these letters and yeah. i know from your your bio that you lived in different places so i assume whatever you moved to you took these letters with you 
Well, and, in fact, I moved to a lot of places and mom hung on to the letters. And then when my mother died in the uh, late eighties, I, I sort of got the letters and it was, um, and they stayed in the shoebox. And when I was uh, remarried, I don't know, 10 years later, um, uh, 15 years later, the, my uh, then wife was um, not a particularly um, sentimental person. And we were going through my apartment saying, well, we, you know, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this. And we had the save bin and the other bin and my didn't have too much my apartment. And she's holding this box of letters and said, what are these? And I said, oh, those are the letters I wrote home when I was in the Marine Corps and in Vietnam. And she said, you know, just, okay, but they go in this bin or that bin. And I said, no, I don't know. I, I guess I should save them. Why? Because my mother always thought that I, I, I could write a book about them. And then she said, why don't you? And that was uh, something I didn't have an answer to. Um, and that was when my wheels were starting to come off anyway from my PTSD, from uh, my exposure to Agent Orange, from diabetes. I mean, all these things were just starting to catch up with me as they did with so many vets so many years later. And I just sat down and I started to transcribe them as therapy. And one thing led to another. Well, you said that you started to transcribe them for your daughters and then for people that you met from Charlie Company. But when you, you were just writing the letters and then like, how, what was the format? How, how were you presenting those? The letters. It was um, the letters themselves. Yeah, the letters. I wrote the letters. And then, right. I went, I went, then I went back and I said, I should probably have fill in some blanks here. You know, if I talk about, you know, Dan Burton, you know, I should probably say who Dan Burton is and put a little backstory in there. If I'm talking about um, different things in boot camp, I should probably put some context in there uh, for things that I talk about. And then I, so I started putting sort of muscle on the bones, if, if that makes sense. Um, and I kept going, I kept going. And um, when I finally, you got this editor many years later, number of years later. Um, and I was really, I wanted it to be me talking through my letters. I wanted it to be, you know, the story, a 19 year old talking through letters. And, um, and she said, you are, um, you're a much better writer now than you were at 19. And you, which isn't, I said, well, that, Okay, so, and she said, no, no, I mean, the story of you telling it now, the stuff that you have in the muscle is better than the stuff that you had on the bones, on your letters. And so I went from having 102 letters to having, I don't know, maybe a paragraph or two from different letters I might've put in. Um, and, um, and it was, a, I mean, I didn't know that I was a writer. I, I didn't know that, you know, that, uh, um, I, I had no thought that, um, you know, I, I had no thought that I was a writer. I, I, I just was putting in stuff until she said, um, you know, how um, that it was much, it was that it was much better, that it fit much better that way. When when did it happen that in, in the fellow you lived above a fellow's garage in North Carolina? I, 
Kill, with the unusual town name of Kill Devil Hills. But yeah. was he also a Marine? Um, yeah, he was in Charlie. He was in Charlie Company. Charlie Company. Me and Dad. That, yeah. So you moved in above this garage, and that's when you. This is going to be a book. That's when you started the process. But well, the you, process that was actually when the process ended, and I I had um, assuming my former wife's not on this call. Um, the uh, I was living in Georgetown, and uh, and our marriage ended. Uh, with the uh, the final words of I don't care if I ever hear, hear the word Vietnam again, and I had spent a good deal of the previous five years writing, going through this, and it was it was more than writing; it was therapy. It was my therapy, and um, so that was that. And the Terry, the guy whose garage I'd been living in in Kill Devil Hills, where in fact the Wright brothers flew their first plane. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, was uh, a, a huge source of, uh, as Dan would attest, of of information. He had a. I tell people he was cursed with a near perfect knowledge of everything that happened to us while we were there, and uh, so he was a um, you know a good guy to uh, bounce things off of. But I got the. Um, I finished writing it right before I went down there, and I got the. Uh, offer from Random House right when I got there. And they weren't going to publish it for another year. So I had a year down there um, um, when I basically knew that it was going to be published. And I got got the advance, which was fortunate because I, I didn't have a pot to piss in. So... Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, They have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, It was two wonderful conversations, so I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information. Or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco Free Adagio Health, for your support.